<clears throat> Today is Saturday, November 26th. Um, this is our day of Jukai, the taking of the precepts. And uh, the ceremony will be this afternoon at 5 o'clock. And uh, maybe I'll go over one more time the structure of the ceremony. Um, <clears throat> people are welcome to come and sit early, earlier in the afternoon. I think the Zendo is open by 3 o'clock. Well, Zendo is yes. always open, so <laughs> if you want to sneak in early, you know, I think that will be overlooked. <clears throat> um, and then uh, just before 5, Truman will start sending people out to the, uh, to the Buddha Hall, and uh, you'll have instructions of what to do there and whatnot. Once we're all in place, uh, we go through a little repentance ceremony. Uh, we went through this uh, about two weeks ago in Taisho. Uh, the beginnings of the ceremony. We have the repentance, gata, <clears throat> go through that three times, and then the uh, uh, the three refuges, the three pure precepts or general resolutions are sometimes called, and then the ten cardinal precepts. And those ten cardinal precepts is what we haven't talked about yet this year, so that's the <clears throat> subject matter. That's my uh, talk this morning. <coughs> you know, I was bandying that word about cardinal, cardinal precepts, and I realized I don't really know what that means. So I looked it up. <clears throat> Probably most people do uh, know, but it just means fundamental, essential. Um, it's also sometimes trans translated as the ten grave precepts, <clears throat> but that puts a kind of a... <laughs> A bummer spin on it, um, and and it's really good to understand. I love the way in uh, Buddhism the precepts are presented, both with a negative side and a positive side. It's a little different from the Ten Commandments in Christianity, which is all "Thou shalt not." So, for instance, for the first precept, we say, "I resolve not to kill, but to cherish all life." It's, uh, <clears throat> it's kind of interesting just to run through the positive side of those. Resolve to cherish all life. I resolve to respect the things of others. I resolve to be caring and responsible <clears throat> with sexuality. I resolve to speak the truth. Resolve to keep the mind clear. Resolve to be understanding and sympathetic. I resolve to overcome my own shortcomings. I resolve to give aid freely where needed. I resolve to practice forbearance. Well, that's almost negative, but <clears throat> we'll go with it. I resolve to cherish and uphold the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. The, uh, the precepts describe a life that's in service of life. It's gone beyond self-protection, self-serving. It's a life that benefits ourselves and others and minimizes the harm we do, the inevitable harm that we do. I say inevitable because there's no way 
we can keep the precepts perfectly. Short of full enlightenment, everyone is subject to delusive thinking. Teachers, students, young, old, subject to delusive thinking and delusive actions, harmful actions, <clears throat> based on self and other. That's, that's the Dharma. That's, that's how things are. It's what we work with. <clears throat> so let's take these up. I'm going to start at the beginning. Chris suggested on the way here, maybe I should do it backwards. Start with 10 and run through to 1. But I've got a, I'm a traditionalist, right? Uh, so the first is, I resolve not to kill, but to cherish all life. Um, obviously, there may be times when we do need to kill. Um, I remember Roshi Kaplow used to bring out the example of a, a mad dog, a dog with rabies. Dog has to be put down, uh, otherwise more damage will be done. There, there are situations, but <clears throat> we work to minimize it, to do it in service of the greater good, not in service of the self and our preferences and our prejudices. The most important thing is what is our mind state? Is it coming out of separation, out of fear, out of greed, <clears throat> out of anger? Remember hearing a story about Tongan Roshi. Uh, there was some creature in the Zendo, maybe it was a scorpion, I don't know. Um, and nobody was sure what to do. How do you kill it? You're violating the, the first precept. Of course, the key is to do what you need to do with an empty mind, without dividing. As he swept up, bowed, and smashed <clears throat> there's beyond beyond um, literal killing there's there's all kinds of other killing that we do and so this precept really has a, a wide application you can be killing time you can be killing people by labeling them putting them in a box or by ignoring them oh he's not worth my time she's just that way never going to change. We always knew that the boy would come to no good. We kill through our callousness to the suffering of others. And then, and then there's shortchanging ourselves. <clears throat> kill our own potential. Live our life on automatic pilot. Working with this precept 
all these precepts, to work with them, is to just bring our awareness to how we think and what we do in the light of whatever precept it is we're working on. Here we see our murderous thoughts. You see when we cut people off. And it gives us some distance, gives us a little leeway, some place to get a pry bar in and make a change. By seeing what's going on in the mind, it's easier not to act in a deluded, in a harmful way. Remember the uh, Auckland Zen Center <clears throat> made some shirts. And I think on the back they said, never underestimate the power of Zazen. Could put it another way, never underestimate the power of awareness. Any change begins with awareness. You can get in sort of a dull, gotta-do-it kind of state and think about, oh, practice, I gotta do my practice. It's awareness. It's living fully. It's waking up. To cherish all life means to care for the natural world, for everything around us. In the uh, meal chants, we say, with all that lives, let us equally share. We're embedded in this world. And our care extends to everything living and inanimate. Care for our shoes. Set them neatly by the shoe cubbies, not just toss them about. Take care of the things that are entrusted to us. And how much more so animals, people, the environment, planet. The second precept is, I've resolved not to take what is not given, but to respect the things of others. This means asking permission before we take something. It means returning what we've bar- borrowed. I uh, <clears throat> have a few uh, books sitting in my bookshelf that I never managed to give back. We all do. It's easy to forget. Not to take what is not given means to share fairly. Um, at a meal, communal meal, if you're the first in line, don't take too much. Make sure there's something there for everybody. Be sensitive to how much there is. It means not wasting. Not wasting time, especially others' time. And really, you can extend it and say, <clears throat> not hogging the spotlight, not eating up all the attention in the room, not dominating every conversation, not spending every conversation thinking about the next <clears throat> bright thing you're going to say, 
but listening. To do take what is given. The, The whole spirit of this precept comes from realizing that we have everything. We're whole and complete. When we act out of a spirit of contentment, confidence, seeing that our needs are met, it's much easier to to stay with the spirit, respecting the things of others. And the third precept, a resolve not to misuse sexuality, but to be caring and responsible. Um, <clears throat> can address this from a male point of view, I guess. Um, and first thing that stands out for me is not to manipulate and not to objectify. Think of adolescent boys, men who've never grown up, obsessed with scoring with cajoling, getting others to do what they may not want to do, pushing others to do what they'll regret. So much tremendous damage is done, especially early in life. Children, teenagers, young adults, manipulated into doing what they don't want to do, then dealing with the fallout from that. It's a misuse of power. And any time there's a power differential, student-teacher relationship, <clears throat> for instance, then sexuality becomes extremely problematic. That's why at the center we have a code of conduct which basically puts students off limits to the teacher. So much damage has been done at so many Zen centers and then beyond the world of Zen, so many churches, so many ashrams, so many gatherings, so many institutions businesses at its best sexuality leads to intimacy to love so easy to misuse Of course, one way the problem's been solved in the past is through celibacy, which is a valid choice. Um, But if that celibacy precludes openness and intimacy, then maybe it's not quite right. There's a koan most many people have heard of about a monk who was living in a, a hut provided by a wealthy woman, an old woman, brought him his meals and 
<clears throat> allowed him to practice there. He's a pretty experienced adept. And one day the old woman got a little curious about where his practice was at. How much had her uh, generosity to him helped him. And so she uh, had a 16-year-old daughter, or maybe granddaughter, not sure how old this woman was. And she uh, said, why don't you go in and, uh, you know, sort of see how interested he is in you. See, see if you can get him to <clears throat> transgress. <laughs> the girl went in and laid her head in his lap and said, how does this make you feel? And I can't remember exactly what he said, but like uh, the old withered tree clings to the ancient rock. <laughs> Drew himself up. And the girl went back and reported. And the old woman came and tore down the hut and drove him out with her broom. What's missing there in that response? Is he even seeing the girl? We want, we want with, with, with morality, we want not only morality, but we want humility, openness. You really want joy. You want the ability to, to light sparks with others. Ability to see. <clears throat> The fourth precept is, I resolve not to lie, but to speak the truth. <clears throat> and this commitment to truth changes our whole relationship to the world. Uh, once we can rely on ourselves. I remember uh, for many years I would notice that whenever I, was, I had done something wrong, maybe I was late, <clears throat> late to the center, for instance, as I would drive there, if I got caught by a red light, I would think, yeah, that's why I'm late. I got caught in traffic. You know, all these excuses would just flow. Where did they come from? Flow into my mind. I, I think I was aware enough not to actually deploy them, but it was just so interesting that they came. Obviously, that was the way I'd lived for years, is try to find an excuse. So... <clears throat> mentioned the fellow I heard in AA who said, I'm honest because I like to travel light. Let's get out of the business of trying to make everything, uh, put ourselves in the best possible light. Because whenever we traffic in deception, and deception doesn't have to be an outright lie, it can just be omitting something. It can be noticing that people have the wrong idea, <laughs> maybe a somewhat too favorable idea of something we've done or said, and allowing them to, to hold that, not, not setting the record straight. When that's our agenda, when that's our direction, we've separated ourselves. <clears throat> have to mention the other side of this one, and that's uh, the dangers of brutal honesty. Some people can become a little too enthusiastic about their truth-telling. Sometimes the 
answer to us, does this make me look fat, is not the truth. <laughs> the question itself is problematic. <clears throat> Makes you look beautiful. And sometimes just silence. There are, there are any number of uh, stories about the Buddha where asked a question, he just remained silent. Because saying yes and saying no would both do damage. <clears throat> the fifth precept is I resolve not to cause others to abuse alcohol or drugs, nor to do so myself, but to keep the mind clear. Usually, often, uh, taking up alcohol, taking up drinking, or taking up using drugs is a form of self-medication. This doesn't happen simply because people are bad people or idiots. They may be idiots, but it's not the only reason. <clears throat> because in the beginning, especially with drinking, uh, probably with, with drugs as well, in the beginning, and, and sometimes for quite a while, it seems to fix what's wrong. This is what it was like for me. I first <clears throat> stumbled into drinking around the age of 15 or 16. Every, all the anxiety and awkwardness that I felt just sloughed off, dropped away. Everything was wonderful. I remember thinking about how the state of Ohio was full of liquor stores. <laughs> endless supply. <laughs> <clears throat> but drugs kind of work bluntly. You know, that, that relief we feel is the suppression of the frontal cortex that's cutting off our inhibitions. And some of those inhibitions are important. <clears throat> the damage that drinking and using can cause is devastating. Just, just think about the, all the deaths from OxyContin and from heroin and from drinking, all the ruined families, all the ruined lives. Then there's the subtle side, the people who are able to use in, quote, air quote, uh, moderation, and yet somehow their lives end up, end up being limited, prescribed, Every night, getting a buzz on, getting up in the morning, going to work, doing it day after day after day, never really connecting. Sometimes it's better to go down the drain and uh, find some sort of resurrection. Carl Jung uh, <clears throat> felt there was a spiritual aspect to drinking. That's why they're called spirits. That openness and freedom. It's an echo of our true freedom. That somewhere we know is our birthright. And then beyond 
actual substances, drinking or snorting or injecting. We make our own drugs. Seriously, it's a, it's a biological fact. We make, we make opiates in the brain. They're called endorphins. And a lot of times that's triggered by habitual actions. So this, this precept <clears throat> to avoid alcohol or drugs but to, and keep the mind clear really can apply to any of the habits we use to get relief. All the ways we find to close off the parts of life we don't want to look at. <clears throat> All the ways we're unwilling to open up. No matter what it is, when we do become addicted, when it becomes the go-to escape, we stop growing. You know, they used to say in AA, people would say, when I got sober at the age of 50 or 60 or whatever, I was still a teenager, emotionally. All those things I'd never learned to deal with because I had a way of blunting them. <clears throat> One of the inevitable things that goes along with opening up is suffering, feeling pain. We open up to the pain of the world, bring it into our own heart. That's the price to actually be alive. It's the price of joy. We could go beyond saying, keep the mind clear and say, keep it alert, flexible, responsive, sympathetic, <clears throat> alive. Those five, those first five precepts are, I think, common to all different schools of Buddhism in the Mahayana, so-called Mahayana division of Buddhism. It's two basic, <clears throat> uh, there's Mahayana and then there's Theravada. used to be called, we used to be taught that it was Hinayana, so that would mean literally the greater vehicle and the lesser vehicle. Um, <clears throat> I think that's fallen out of favor now, and we use the term Theravadan. Um, that's, the school doesn't matter. Matters is the person. Matters is the mind. Anyway, we have these other five precepts, which are <laughs> probably even more bedeviling than the first five, and I especially am thinking about the next two, which I'm going to take together. So that's number six and number seven. Uh, the sixth precept is, I resolve not to speak of the faults of others, but to be understanding and sympathetic. And the seventh is, I resolve not to praise myself and disparage others, but to overcome my own shortcomings. <clears throat> think of all the precepts during the term intensives. I think these two get taken up by people who want to look into how they relate to their desire to follow the precepts, uh, look into how that works out for them and, and have some insight into what they're doing and not doing, thinking and not thinking. Uh, 
it's just so natural to try to to be self-preferential, to try to make ourselves look good. Who hasn't seen a group photo and immediately gone to look at your own face? I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that does that, but it's it's just so automatic. <clears throat> really built in. Yeah, thanks, evolution. The sixth patriarch said, I see, yet I do not see. He was asked, what do you mean by see, but not see? And he said, seeing, I constantly see the errors and faults of my own mind. Not seeing, I do not see other people's rights and wrongs, goodness and evil. Such a good practice. Be vigilant about our own motivations. So the only motivations we can really know. And don't cause harm by presuming that we understand the motivations of others. By putting a value judgment or a label on what they do. We're taught in Buddhism, everything is the result of causes and conditions. It's how everybody comes to be how they are. We see it, of course. We see when someone's rigid or we notice when someone's uh, boasting, boastful, or uh, when they're lazy. But it's just things as they are. There's no need to apply that judgment. Find ways of bringing it up find ways of comparing it to our superior behavior. When we flare up with righteousness, we lose our connection, reduce others to a caricature, and we lose our intimacy. There's a... uh, teacher in the Thai forest tradition, an Ajahn, who says his mantra is, right now it's like this. Right now it's like this. It's our life. Now. This. Zen Master Muman said, when you argue right and wrong, you are a person of right and wrong. Of course, sometimes we may have a role, a job to do that requires we point out what's wrong, or maybe a better way to put it is point out unskillful behavior. But we fail in that role if we lose our sympathy, if we lose our understanding. We can help other people by pointing out their faults, but need to find a skillful way of doing it. Sarcasm is usually not the best way. We all have our <clears throat> our default uh, ways of cutting off others, and um, I think mine is probably sarcasm. It's, it's, it's painful. 
It's hard to be sarcastic and be sympathetic. We know from paying attention, we know that we ourselves are riddled with errors and faults. We know because I've read from Anthony DeMello 25 times that I'm an ass, you're an ass. Robert Aiken, uh, in his book, uh, The Mind of Clover, which is mainly about the precepts, pretty good book, I think, says, it is not easy. Just as when we practice with Mu and it's not clear, so we practice intimacy when we do not feel it. Just as we return again and again to Mu after drifting into remembering and planning, so we return again and again to intimacy when we drift into discussing the faults of others. That's what this is all about, noticing and responding. And what do we mean by intimacy? The easy way to say it is just to drop the delusion of the small separate self, the self that we cherish and protect, and opening up to things as they are. I want to read a little bit from Robert Aitken. For people who don't know, he was for many years uh, a teacher of the Diamond Sangha in Hawaii, a contemporary of Roshi Kaplow's. I think they were sort of frenemies. He says, when we find trust in intimacy, then there are no outsiders to put into boxes. We include people, animals, trees, stones, and clouds by our realization of Buddha nature. The other is no other than myself. In Mahayana terms, when I forget the self, I find that the other is nurturing me. Give the other a chance. Do you say this is naive? Maybe so, but look where sophistication has brought us. The problem is that we get hooked by appearances and are no longer standing on our own feet. With trust, however, we can pay attention to the innate person out there. If someone is aloof, perhaps a smile and a friendly question, or perhaps simply respectful silence may be appropriate. The question is, who is boss here? Are you blown about by the words and actions of others, or do you sit firmly in your own dojo, that is, practice hall, of intimacy. When something happens, do you use that chance or are you used by it? Do you blindly react? Later on he says, actually a so-called fault is a weak place where character can change. Your quality of stubbornness, your quality of passivity, your quality of anger, 
These are the sensitive places in your personality where your individual talent can emerge. It is your anger that will enable you to correct evil in the world. It is your stubbornness that will enable you to realize Mu, get through your koan. It is your passivity that will enable you to endure hardship on the path. When you truly see how much change can occur in yourself and how you can use your qualities of character, then you will appreciate how others may do so also. The real damage, one of the real forms of damage that we do by focusing on what's wrong with others is we develop this brutal, disparaging mind and then it gets turned on ourselves. Inevitably, if you bash others, you're going to bash yourself. And if you bash yourself, you're probably going to bash others. give the last word here on these two precepts to the Buddha who said do not give your attention to what others do give it to what you do or fail to do number eight is I resolve not to withhold spiritual or material aid but to give them freely where needed so that's spiritual or material it's effort, time, attention listening, helping with the dishes. Surely it's also making donations, but basically it's the spirit of giving. It means not being too stingy with praise or too fearful to give feedback when it would help. I think sometimes there's a tendency to be really, really stingy with praise. We maybe have inherited from the Japanese. I think, I think it's, there's a cultural difference where the praise that rarely comes is really prized when it does. But in our culture, the praise that rarely comes, often the reaction is, well, they don't say it very often because they don't really believe it. Uh, so it's really it's a question of skillful means. But my, my own observation is I don't praise people enough or thank people enough. <clears throat> the, the difficulty with this precept is our uh, fixation on the, on the self, on self-protection. Just a simple example of giving. Always afraid if I give too much, what if I go hungry or I don't have enough? Clearly, we need to be judicious, but so often we're too, we're too risk-averse. Giving aid freely means taking a risk. I really get into this conversation with him or her or them. It'll take all afternoon. Let me just cut it short. Well, sometimes you may need to do that, but so often we do it just because we're risk-averse, we're afraid. The whole thing of plunging ahead, 
you know, giving can be giving yourself to your practice, to really working wholeheartedly. There's a fear in that too. <clears throat> if I try hard and I fail, it's going to feel horrible. But when we make up our mind, things open up. Let me read something. It was written by a guy named William Hutchison Murray. I think back in the 1800s. It says, Until one is committed, there is hesitancy. The chance to draw back. Always ineffectiveness. Concerning all acts of initiative and creation, there is one elementary truth, the ignorance of which kills countless ideas and splendid plans, that the moment one definitely commits oneself then providence moves too. All sorts of things occur to help one that would never otherwise have occurred. A whole stream of events issues from the decision, raising in one's favor all manner of unforeseen incidents and meetings and material assistance, which no man could have dreamt would have come his way. I've learned a deep respect for one of Goethe's couplets. Whatever you can do or dream you can, begin it. Boldness has genius, power, and magic in it. Think of when Roshi Kaplow went to Japan. Someone told him, bodhisattvas will spring up to help you. And they did. Now we're here in the sendo. from Shantideva, Indian Buddhist. Before Zen even existed, he said, all the joy the world contains has come through wishing happiness for others. All the misery the world contains has come through wanting pleasure for oneself. To drop the small self brings joy as much as we can do it. The ninth precept, I resolve not to indulge in anger, but to practice forbearance. The thing about anger is we just get swept up. It's an emotion. It moves us. Lose ourselves in our anger. The word forbearance uh, is better than suppression. Sometimes we do have to hold back, but uh, I suppose suppression is better than just blasting everybody in sight. But we need to know that we're angry. Uh, Sometimes that suppression means we don't really look at it. Uh, We need to listen to the body. If If you're angry, there's something going on physically, something you can tune into that will actually guide you. You have a little distance. The great damage from anger comes with people just completely go into a blind state, blind anger. The more we're able to catch ourselves, to know that we're angry, the more we grow, the more we find some freedom. 
It takes a while. I've recounted before the time that I was in the middle of a fight with my wife and realized, oh, I'm angry, and thought about, <laughs> you know, admitting my side of things, my, my faults as well, and just said, no, <laughs> no I'm not going to do that. Um, I wanted to win that argument. can't remember whether I did. Um, but it was a start, you know. It was like I, I look back on that and I think I was waking up. Didn't really cover myself with glory that day, but um, that's a beginning just to know. <clears throat> we need to trust the process. Trust the fact that seeing what's going on is going to change things. Our anger evaporates if we don't feed it. And you see that in people who've been working on themselves. Uh, their anger may come up suddenly, but it doesn't linger. A moment later, it's gone. <clears throat> Nevertheless, even a short blast of anger can do a lot of damage. Because it may not linger for you <clears throat> in your exalted state, but for someone else it can last for days. Actually, the effects of anger are biological. Stress hormones, cortisol, neurotransmitters, changes in the sizes of the amygdala, um, just new structural patterns. These get laid down. It's a real thing. It's a real, not only mental phenomenon, but mental and physical phenomenon. And there are lifelong effects from someone who lives with angry abuse, any kind of abuse. I think everyone on the planet carries a little bit of damage. Our parents do the best they can. <clears throat> Sometimes we hurt our children. Yeah, be especially vigilant about justified anger. When you're completely in the right, you're really in danger. And remember that we, we see our own motivations. So in justified anger, we know we're doing right, and we just assume that the other person is morally deficient, bad intentions. Poet Longfellow said, If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life enough sorrow and suffering to diffuse all hostility. Everybody's doing the best they can. Right now, it's like this. <clears throat> okay, I'm running dangerously close to 10.30. Got one more. The 10th precept, I resolve not to revile the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, but to cherish and uphold them. So I did talk about these in the Teisho two weeks ago. Just want to add that to uphold the three treasures 
means to respect and honor our own nature and our own practice. And to uphold this precept means to drop our obsession with accomplishment and just give thanks for this path. It's been opened up to all of us. way not to do harm, to do good, and to liberate all sentient beings. We'll stop now and recite the four vows.